I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Nick Stovall, principal oboe of the National Symphony Orchestra, to talk all about his instrument. He shares with us how the oboe evolved over the centuries, the composers and works to listen to, and he plays for us some big orchestral moments as well. Plus, stay with us to the end to find out if his dog howls when he plays at home. Thank you so much for joining me, Nick, to talk all about the oboe. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. It's good you're glad to be here because I have a lot of questions. And the first one is, if you had to describe the oboe to someone who had never been to an NSO concert or uh, seen an oboe or maybe even heard one, how would you describe it to them in just a few sentences? I think I'm going to play off a bit of some of my colleagues' responses my dear friend Lynn Ma and my dear friend Sue Heinemann. Um, Lynn told you about the clarinet. It's a black instrument with silver keys, and the same is true of the oboe. Um, it's a black wood instrument with silver keys. And in the case of the of Sue and the bassoon, it's often confused. You know, people sometimes they don't know if the oboe is the large one or the smaller one, but it is in fact the smaller one, which looks similar, as I say, to the clarinet. Okay. And the sound is quite striking as well. It's very different from the other wind instruments. How would you describe the sound as compared to something they may have heard like a flute or a clarinet? Yeah, the sound of the oboe is described variously as penetrating, as uh, (laughs) plangent. I've heard that word used before. It's a very intense sound. It can be a very intense sound and it's easily identified I think because of that. Okay. I love the sound because it has that penetrating quality to it. It can just kind of push through the orchestra sometimes, but it's still, it never sounds, well, to me at least, it doesn't sound shrill. It doesn't sound aggressive unless that's what the part calls for. It still has this nice compact sound that's just able to just punch through the orchestra. That's the hope. I mean, I, I, I'm always hoping not to sound aggressive or, or pressed. There is a lot of pressure that is uh, required to play the oboe. It's a very small aperture in the reed. The double reed is a key part of the instrument. It's very, very small, and so there's a lot of back pressure. Um, you see sometimes players you know, turning all sorts of terrible-looking colors, turning red and purple in the face and that sort of thing. So we have to manage the pressure that it takes to play the instrument, and I think that that can often come across in the sound. Let's talk about that pressure for a second, because that's something I think a lot of people don't quite understand, in that the oboe has what seems to be the opposite problem of instruments like flute or tuba, which will just, you can just freely let go of the air and the instrument will just take it. With this, you have all of that pressure. It's like if you have a straw and you close off one end, but just one tiny little pinhole and try to blow through it. You see people's necks kind of um, get inflamed. Yeah, the, the, maybe they're turning funny colors. Yeah. Um, how is that? I mean, that, that's got to be quite something to either get used to or maybe you don't even get used to that. What you say is true, that it's, it's exactly the opposite of the flute, where there is really no resistance. And then on the oboe, it's probably the most resistant thing you can think of. We manage that by trying to craft the reeds to suit the player. We think a lot about the different muscles that are involved, and we use our abdominal muscles all the way down. 
as many of the other instruments do too, but we have to think really consciously about where that pressure is being held. Is it in the mouth? Is it in the throat? How much of it is getting concentrated at the reed? Because the pressure that we feel as players should not translate ideally to the ear of a listener because we want to create a, a, a smooth floating line. We don't want to have the sense that it's stopped up and full of uh, difficulty. Another question I have about pressure is about uh, breathing. For me in my instrument, which you know, the tuba just takes the air from you basically, mm -hmm. there are times where if you're playing higher or in the middle register where you actually have too much air built up, that pressure I think you feel when you play the oboe, but when that happens to me, I'm able to breathe out slowly while I'm playing through my nose to relieve that pressure. Is that something that the oboe can do, or is it just something you need the pressure? Well, actually, it crops up in terms of actually planning, I think. You have to plan your breathing on any wind instrument, obviously. Like where you're going to take your breath, you want them to be making sense musically. But in addition to the breaths that you take in, as any of the other wind instruments do, we actually spend quite a bit of time thinking about where you're going to breathe out. Mm. In an extended passage or in a solo uh, that you might play, a concerto or something like that, just as often as you plan places that you're going to take a breath in, you have to plan places where you're going to breathe out because, as you say, you end up with this kind of stale air that you need to expel before you can get fresh, nourishing oxygen. Okay, that's so interesting. That's something that I think most of us would not know, of course, unless we're talking to someone who actually plays the instrument itself. So where did the oboe come from? Like, what about what time period do we see it coming into music? Did it come from an older instrument? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the probably the oldest relative would be what you call a shawm. Think of the, maybe in an old cartoon or something like that, or children's book where you see the snake charmer playing and drawing a snake out of a basket or something like that. The instrument that he's probably playing is what you would call a shawm. It's a double reed instrument, really super basic, no keys on it. It's probably just a, you know, a, a piece of wood that's been turned down with some holes in it and a really basic kind of double reed. So I think that's where you can trace the beginnings of what is now an oboe. Around about the time of, of Bach and Telemann and Handel in the Baroque period, it starts to get, it, it's a more refined instrument. It still has no keys, it's still made out of wood, but the reed becomes a little bit more refined. And those composers use the instrument in a very soloistic role. The music of Bach contains so many gorgeous lines for the oboe in the cantatas, in the orchestral suites, in the Brandenburg concertos, the first two of them have prominent parts for oboe. It's really used not just as, a, as an instrument to double the violins, you know, and to kind of increase sound, but to, to be a soloist in its own right. So that sham, I think that that's like from like the 13th century, that's really old. And then a couple hundred years later in the, what sounds like um, 1600s into the 1700s in this Baroque period, we get a little more refined um, in terms of the oboe as to what it is with that reed. And then we start to see holes in the instruments, but not quite keys yet in, in box time. Is that what's happening on the instrument? Yeah, little by little, the, the keys start to get added, you know, so that you can play chromatically in a more convincing way. And then... 
in the in the time of Mozart and Haydn, then more and more keys start to get added so that that chromatic playing, so you can play in all of the keys basically and have it sound appropriate. So it sounds like it basically faced a lot of the same uh, things that other wind instruments of the time did in the uh, 1500s, 1600s, into the 1700s, in that you couldn't play all of the notes cleanly on the instrument, all the chromatic notes that you're talking about, basically, all the notes that we use in Western music. You'd have to kind of manipulate the instrument or your embouchure or do something to make it work on a trumpet, for example, that natural trumpet. So it sounds like that's something similar evolutionary-wise with the uh, with the oboe. What other Baroque composers liked or used the oboe very well? Really all of them, honestly. Telemann, Handel, Vivaldi, their concerti um, by all of these composers for the oboe. So it was well thought of even at that period of time. And it was obviously played by virtuosos who could make the case for it. Now what about Vivaldi? Because I've seen some writings and things, especially in um, CD liner jackets of um, famous oboe soloists when talking about Vivaldi, his music was so hard for the oboe. It sounded like it was almost like um, uh, just totally out of the ordinary and kind of a mystery as to who was playing these solos by Vivaldi. Was his music just that much more difficult? They also saw that it was like another 50 or 70 years before people started writing like he was writing in terms of difficulty. Right, yeah, it is It is incredibly virtuosic, and as far as the players who were actually playing it at the time, I'm not quite sure about that. It's probably well known that he was the teacher, the music teacher, and a composer at, a, at an orphanage for young girls, mm-hmm. and so maybe they, there was a, a really hotshot group of young ladies who could play this music. I don't know, but um, you're, what you say is true. It... It's incredibly virtuosic and challenging in a way that still presents challenges on a modern oboe. And looking forward now from the Baroque period, Bach and Vivaldi, you mentioned that the instrument gets more keys or is evolved in a way where it can play all the notes that it needs to in the time and writings of Mozart and Haydn. Did they kind of write for the oboe in kind of an extended way, the same as Bach and Vivaldi? Or did they do something new, thinking like Bach separated it from the soprano or the violin? Mm. Did other composers do even more adventurous stuff when it comes to like the late 18th century? Yeah, well, they, the expansion that occurred there is in terms of range. One thing that really jumps to my mind is the Mozart Oboe Quartet, which is a kind of middle period work. It's the critical numbers 370. And it was written for a specific player... It expands the range of the instrument, the the notes, the actual notes that that we play in both directions. It goes up to a high F above the treble staff, and it goes um, down into the the lowest register of the instrument around middle C. The keys that were added at that point helped to be able to play in those ranges, but it's also cast in a solo role. There's a Mozart oboe concerto in addition to this quartet that I'm speaking about. There's a Haydn. There's a concerto that's attributed to Haydn. There's sort of a mysterious story around that piece. But but yeah, the composers of the period definitely used it in similar ways and in concerto roles and so forth. So it sounds like the oboe is in the camp of a lot of other instruments that evolved or soloistic type instruments 
I'm wondering about quickly before we talk about the 1800s and how maybe Beethoven or Brahms or Dvorak would use the oboe. When did the oboe start being used for tuning? What time period did that? Because if I'm sure people know, when the orchestra, the lights come down, uh, the concertmaster walks out, the oboist, that's the person playing that tuning note. When did that start? I would say that probably starts around the period of time that we're talking about, the classical era orchestra going into the romantic. It's a convention that developed along with the development of the modern orchestra. So the composers that you just mentioned, Beethoven, Brahms, etc., the reasons behind it, I've heard a couple of different possible reasons, and I think that it's possible, you know, that, that equ- they're equally valid. One being that it is a, it's as we've discussed, a very penetrating sound, and the central placement in the orchestra makes it so that all of the other instruments can hear mm-hmm. very well. So I think that that's plausible. Another explanation, which makes sense to me, is that. Unlike many of the other instruments, like the string instruments have tuning pegs. You can you can turn the the tuning pegs to fine uh, fine tune on the stage. Clarinet, trumpet, all the brass instruments. You can you know pull and push tuning slides and parts of the instrument. You make it longer or shorter in order to fine tune the intonation. On the oboe, once you've made the reed, there's really not a lot of adjusting to be done, certainly not on the fly on the stage. So in that way, the oboe is fixed in place. Mm. (laughs) I can change a reed, but I can't really, I mean, I can change to a different reed, but I can't really change the reed that I'm playing on. That is so interesting because one, that is what I heard growing up as well, that it was the instruments fixed. You know, once you have that in there, they can't move. The rest of us, we move. In fact, while we're playing, if you look in the back row, especially a trumpet if you can see closely or two, but we're moving all the slides in the middle while we're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can be flexible at a moment's notice, but the oboe, you are, uh, you're kind of, you're right there stuck with it. And early on, the orchestras were quite smaller. They were much smaller than today. So the oboe has that penetrating sound, but maybe that wasn't even so necessary back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, as you say, it's true that the orchestras get bigger, they get louder, and perhaps that convention just kind of found its place and and stuck around. Okay, so now going into the 1800s, into what we like to call the Romantic period, how does the oboe change from there? Are there more technological advances, more musical advances in how composers are using the instrument? As far as technological advances, it, it sort of goes little bit by little bit until the latter part of the 1800s, I would say. It's really not until then that we start to see something that resembles a modern oboe. Mm-hmm. So in the time of Beethoven Brahms, keys are being added so that it can be playing more convincingly in all the different keys, as we've said, and fine, uh, fine adjustments in terms of the, the bore, the size of the instrument, so that it can start playing louder. Now, looking to the 20th century and today, it looks, it sounds like to me, basically everything you've said just times 10. There's parts that are so difficult for the oboe. There's just a lot going on, it seems, in terms of how more technically difficult the music can be. That's right. The the demands on the players rises exponentially. The composers, because of developments 
of the instruments themselves, the composers start to write more difficult passages, and so they, the things just sort of feed off of one another. And then you've got hotshot players that come come along, and that can exceed the demands of even the composers, or the exceed you know what the instruments could have previously done. And that also moves things forward. So it all begins to move even much more quickly. What would be a piece from the 20th century that you would say uses the oboe in a very characteristic way? Or if there was a 20th century piece, you would say to someone, here's something to listen to if you want to like or hear the oboe in a certain way. What would you what would you recommend? Well, I have a couple of answers to that question, actually, because one thing that we haven't really delved into is the fact that the role that the oboe has, certainly in orchestral music, but just by and large, is one of carrying beautiful melodies. Certainly we can play virtuosic, we can play virtuosic lead, we can play fast notes, we can play things that maybe impress you in that way, but if I was asked to point towards a piece of music from the 20th century, I would actually point someone to the Strauss Oboe Concerto. It's written in the very latter part of the composer's life, and at the time, at the time it was written, people wouldn't really even play it because it puts enormous demands on the soloist. There are these exceedingly long phrases that you have to manage with the breathing, as we were talking about finding places to breathe in, but also breathe out. So in that way, it expands what's possible in the instrument, but it's also just, it's some of the most glorious music that I get to play, I think. And I'm going to put uh, links to some of this music that you've been mentioning, like that Strauss, on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Something we've not talked about quite yet is the dynamics that the oboe is capable of. We know that it has this sound that penetrates the orchestra, but does that mean that it also plays very loud? I'm also wondering, how is it playing soft on the instrument? A lot of wind instruments can play almost insultingly soft, like the clarinet, for instance. How does the oboe fit in with that? Yeah, so the dynamic range of the oboe really is much more limited, I would say, than many of the other instruments, kind of in both directions. Like, we certainly can't play as loud as a trumpet or a trombone, something like that. And we have a difficult time managing the really soft end as the way that the clarinet plays. I like your the frame around that that you put that is insultingly soft. So we're, we're constantly trying to expand this. We want to give the impression of a huge dynamic range, but it's it's we're dealing with rather limited uh, means. Actually, the range, the, the, the notes that the instrument can play is rather limited as well in terms of some of the other instruments. The, we're basically dealing with kind of a two and a half, almost three octave range at the best of times. And how do oboe parts differ from the rest of the wind section? You've mentioned um, how you know beautiful and glorious this instrument is for playing melodies. Is that what separates it from some of the other wind sections? I'm wondering, you know, why would a composer choose to give a line to the oboe instead of the flute or bassoon, for instance? Yeah, I, I've heard it described this way that often when there's a change of mood, you know, maybe a composer is going from a passage of exuberance to a passage of a somewhat more introspection, oftentimes you'll find an oboe solo. So it's it's a, it's a very, I think because of the penetrating quality of the sound, it's a, it can be an emotional 
kind of instrument. And the composers really from the time of Beethoven Brahms all the way through use it in that way that to convey some kind of emotional quality. Mm. That makes sense as you're describing when there's this change, because when the instrument comes in, it naturally changes the sound and texture of whatever's playing with it. If it's just the wind section or if this is coming out right with the strings alone or something, it um, it has that power to just dramatically shift the um, the uh, the feeling of the music. So we've been talking about your oboe, but there are other instruments in this oboe family, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, yeah. So similar to the other wind instruments, there's the main one that everybody sort of knows. There's the flute, but then there's also the piccolo and the alto flute on the oboe. There's, there's the oboe that we're speaking about, but there's also an English horn, which is the alto, or I guess I suppose actually tenor member of the family. It's pitched in the key of F. The oboe is in C, so when we play a C on the oboe, when I read a C on the oboe, the note C comes out. Um, so the English horn is lower pitched, it's in F. And between the two, there's the oboe de more, which is pitched in A. And there's even one uh, even lower than the English one. It's called bass oboe, which is in C again. So it's pitched an octave lower than the oboe. So another question I have is, how old is your oboe? The oboe, the instrument that I actually play? Yeah, the instrument that you actually play in the orchestra. So the one that I'm playing most often is about three years old. Oboe players tend not to keep their instruments as long, certainly as long as a string player or even a flutist or bassoonist might, some of those players might use the same instrument for an entire career. Oboists are often changing instruments every few years, largely to do with the fact of that conical bore. Once the bore gets a little larger at the top, the response characteristic and the tone quality of the instrument actually starts to change a bit. And uh, you can start to feel like you're missing out on something. That is a fun, interesting thing about the oboe because we look at other instruments that are centuries old, unknown even, or you know, there's just so many things that are always about playing really, really old instruments. And for the oboe, it's interesting, but also very sad for you that you, one, have to part with this instrument that you've done so many great concerts on. But of course, you part with it because it's not doing the things you need to do. Because all that pressure, the moisture, the changes and all of that stuff when you're playing it, and then when it's sitting by itself, that must have quite a toll that leads to that. Yeah, it's a living, breathing piece of wood. You know, wood changes over time. The wood floors in your house or the wood furniture that you have, it's it's actually always changing. And when you're dealing with such fine parameters as you are with a woodwind instrument with the oboe, once those changes start to happen, things shift, and it's not really quite the instrument that you used to have. Talking about technological advancements, maybe one interesting thing that bears on what we're talking about is that the makers of oboes recently have, many of them, begun using a synthetic upper part, the inner part of the wooden instrument. They, they insert it with a piece of plastic and then make the bore from that. Mm. So the final measurements are made that way. The, the thinking being that plastic isn't going to shift and move as much as a piece of wood is. And so you might be able to have a longer lasting instrument or at least one that is um, more consistent. 
And I'm sure there's all kinds of discussions, maybe fights, as to, um, is it should you be playing on plastic, or does is the resonance the same, all that kind of stuff? I imagine there's also a lot of those kinds of discussions in oboe circles. I think so, but maybe with uh, less puritanism than you would mm. think, because a lot of players, especially ones that will play um, in orchestras or ensembles that do outdoor performances in the summers, say, or even thinking on the other end, if you play in a really cold church, mm -hmm. having a fully plastic upper part of the instrument can be a lifesaver because the wood cracks. And when the wood cracks, that necessarily changes the dimensions. It changes all sorts of characteristics. Um, not to mention, if it goes through the holes, the tone holes of the instrument, it can render the instrument unplayable. So it's a real worry and a lot of people are moving towards at least just a synthetic upper part, um, if not the whole instrument. Oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, there are so many factors that go into making these instruments and then the technological advances that now let you use an instrument um, for even longer. And yes, musicians in cold churches know very well how painful that is. Um, and even more painful when you're playing with the uh, the church organ as well, <laughs> yes. especially for you, your instrument that doesn't even move. Right. Now, tell us about the reeds, because this is a huge part of being an oboe player, right? These reeds that you have to make yourself. So the reed making is a huge part of my life and my job as an oboe player, Um you really do have to do it yourself. It's so personal based on your own physiology, like this shape inside of my mouth, the amount of air that I am gonna blow, how much air I want to blow. This is all very personal and I have to be able to manage that with the reed that I'm playing on at, at any given moment. It's, it's actually, I'd like to say, it's the most important part of my instrument and I'm making it from scratch basically every day. How much time do you spend making reads compared to how much you practice, for instance? Or how much of your day does it take up if you're doing it all the time? Well, it ebbs and flows, and it is largely dependent on what are my needs at the time. So, for example, um, I played with my colleagues in the NSO, the Haydn Symphonia Concertante, um, earlier this season. And leading up to that, I spent quite a lot of time making sure that I had a good stock of reads that I could depend upon. If it's a lighter week or a week where the orchestra isn't playing, then I blessedly get to spend a little less time at my reed-making desk. So in that way, it ebbs and flows. Okay. I mean, it sounds like you do appreciate the break from making reeds. The way you described it there, you felt a little jubilation of, when the week is a little slower, I get to make reeds less. Yeah, and if it's gone well for a period of time, then you have kind of a little stockpile, which feels nice. Um, so they, depending on the characteristic of the cane, the, the reeds are made from cane, as the bassoon reed is. It's a natural material. You know, sometimes they last longer than others. You always want to be in the position that you're cultivating new talent. You know, you've got something new that's coming up that you, that's, you think that's going to be pretty good. You want to have stuff that is good, that is reliable. And then actually it is useful to have ones that are maybe a little past their prime, but that you keep them around just in case or to do some specific type of repertoire. And about how long is a read lasting? I mean, it's hard to put a number on that. Are we talking weeks, 
months, days, um, all of the above? All of the above. Yeah, it, it really depends on the piece of cane. Oboists and bassoonists are talking about hardness all of the time. How hard is a piece of cane? And it's a little bit esoteric. People have kind of mysterious ways of measuring this, or they have in the past. Everything from like dropping it on a tabletop to, to listen to, you know, what is the pitch of the, the, the sound that comes out, things like that. You know, you can, you can rub your thumbnail across if it's too ridgy. Maybe that means that it's a soft piece of cane. And the inner part, is it kind of mealy and shredded looking? All of these kinds of things kind of go into how we characterize the cane. But so, I mean, I've had reads that last only, sadly, maybe one performance, or even maybe they wow. don't even work out for the entire performance. But then I've also had ones that stick around amazingly for weeks or even a month um, with careful, you know, refinement. That's interesting. A day, a month, it's all, it's all. it seems to be up in the air at times. And the way you're describing the reads and, and you know, how people try to you know judge or you know what is a good quality read i can totally imagine now at oboe conferences i mean <laughs> if you just play the audio from maybe a room of discussion is this a wine tasting or is, is this about reads i i can hear everyone talking about this floral i don't know bouquet of sound of coming from these different reads and then compare maybe there's a vintage of, of cane that was well it's, it's funny you say that yes there are people that will talk about their favorite bag of cane from 1984 or whatever. Oh, so I was right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's a hard way to live. It's a very capricious instrument um, that maybe you're gathering this from the, mm -hmm. our discussion, but at a certain point, you just have to make it work. So I feel like I'm treading a line. I, I'm, I'm walking a fine line all the time. And we're going to hear you play the oboe and some great examples right after this. Let's take a quick break. Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at WETAClassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Okay, Nick, it is time to hear the oboe. What is the first thing you're going to play for us? The first thing I brought is the iconic oboe solo from the second movement, the Funeral March, of Beethoven's Third Symphony, subtitled Eroica. That was beautiful. Tell us about this. What is what is this like for you as the oboe player playing this, either emotionally or musically? Why is this something you would choose to play for us? So I brought this for a few reasons. One of them being, as I say, it is an iconic solo. It's one that every oboe player knows because it is always asked for if you're auditioning for an orchestra. It's just bread and butter kind of material. But beyond just that, it's, I think, rather amazing music. And it was impressed upon me in my training that this solo in particular is a reason to 
think about and cultivate a beautiful sound. We all want to play with a beautiful sound on the instrument, but particularly in orchestra, you have to craft a tone that carries the musical message. And that is clear to me because in this music, before the oboe comes in, there is an eight bar introduction. The pieces in C minor, the, the violins are playing. They play this same theme. And then the oboe comes in, one voice alone, whereas the whole violin section was playing previously, one voice comes. And in just this short passage, you go from the gloomy C minor and carry the message forward into this bright, sunny E flat major by the time that the solo is over with. So that says to me that Beethoven is entrusting a huge amount of responsibility to this one solo line and all of the time in orchestra, in this piece, in all of the pieces that we play, I'm trying to live up to the composer's intentions. That sounds like really a great example of something you mentioned before in that the oboe is great in its use of character change. When it comes in, the, the mood can change. Composers use it in that way. And with this, with Beethoven, as you're describing C minor into E flat, you're pulling the orchestra along with you into this whole new key by yourself. Absolutely. And it's an exhilarating feeling in the orchestra, and it's a lot of responsibility. So what is another example you can play for us? So I've also brought for you the opening of the solo in the Brahms Island Concerto Second Movement. Absolutely beautiful. And that is quite different from the Beethoven as well. It feels like uh, at certain points, every note has so much length and determination to it almost. Describe for us how is this one compared to the Beethoven or what makes this one unique? So this is another example of the oboe getting to play just a gorgeous, beautiful melody. It's distinct from the Beethoven, I believe, because it's in the second octave. It's, in, it's in a higher range of the instrument here. And of all of the great composers, Brahms is the one that really requires breadth in the second octave, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. And is this one also used in, in auditions for orchestras or summer festivals, conservatories? Yes, it is another one that everybody really must know. And, and it's an iconic moment in repertoire, it occurs at the beginning of the second movement, and the oboe plays this extended melody while the violin soloist stands there doing nothing for a long time. I mean, it's, it's, I want to say it's about two minutes of music, and the oboe gets to play the most gorgeous melody in the whole piece, really, if you ask me, and the violin soloist has to just stand there and listen. What is it like when you're playing that and you're playing and um, a famous violinist is sitting right there 20 feet away from you 
looking at you? I don't know. What is that like? Well, I've had some really lovely experiences with that. I, I haven't encountered a violin soloist who actually was perturbed by it, um, but it has been really gratifying to see um, a famous soloist maybe turn their head and incline towards me a little bit and give some nod of approval. That, that's all, that always makes me feel nice. Um, it, asking about what it feels like also leads me to think it's interesting when we play these pieces, when we play these excerpts, like I did for you, out of context, just the one line alone, it is such a different experience with all the other instruments around. And this is a good example of that, I feel, because the orchestration in this Brahms is quite thick. All of the other woodwinds are playing. It's not just an oboe solo with strings playing around or something like that, you know, that it's, there's that kind of contrast. No, it's it's really like ensemble playing, and it makes me think of repertoire like the Mozart serenades. There are these gorgeous pieces of music that were written for just solely wind ensembles, and this Brahms has that feeling. Uh, what is another example from the orchestra you can play for us? So the other thing I have for you is a short excerpt from the second movement of Debussy's La Mer. Okay, that one, quite technical. Sounds very difficult, I think, to um, everyone listening right now, and one of my favorite works as well. Give us some context to this, what's happening, what is the role of the oboe in this moment with all of these notes played so closely, so fast together. So the title of this second movement in Debussy's score is The Play of the Waves. Um, So what I'm trying to convey with this music is playfulness and Distinct from the other long melodies that I brought here, which I love to play, this is, as you say, more technical. This has more rapid notes, and it's creating effect more than it's creating a melody. I don't think you could really call this a melody. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a nice way to show something else that the instrument can do. Also, incidentally, it occurs to me that I haven't said so far, the oboe is a French instrument, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring some sort of French music. Of course. And Debussy writing that um, difficult line, as you said, it's not really quite a melody. It is uh, an effect. It's it's a character. It's, it's bringing something out um, very clearly in the music. Is this something with the level of playing rising, especially over the last century? Is this something that is this an excerpt that people are playing younger and younger now? I think so. I do think so. It's also one that is maybe becoming less and less um, extreme. Maybe in mm. previous generations, players would have maybe some fear even approaching this. And it's now getting to the point where it's just part of what we do. And maybe that fear has been dissipated somewhat. Now, a question about the read and with these excerpts you just played. You played all of them on the same read, but is that something you would do in a concert? Would you use that same read that you just played the Debussy on for that Beethoven funeral march? No, that's it's very perceptive of you to, to ask that question. Absolutely, I would not. I think the requirements of that Debussy being in the upper octave, having rapid articulation, if I was playing the full work 
I would definitely be gearing my read making that week to the piece, mm -hmm. which would be distinct from a, a week of Beethoven third. But also in an audition situation, to, to keep going back to that, it's not really feasible to think that you could change reads for every single excerpt on an audition list because you would be required to play the Beethoven third and then the Brahms violin concerto and the La Mer and any many, any number of other things on the same read. So it is something that is required at certain points. Let's get into your role now with the National Symphony Orchestra, your principal oboe, one of the high-profile roles in the orchestra. Tell us about this. What is your role? What does that entail? So my role in the orchestra chiefly is to play the first oboe parts in the major repertoire. The National Symphony has four members of the oboe section. There's myself, there's an assistant principal, a second oboist, and English horn. So most of our repertoire has either two or three members of the oboe section required. So I share the, the principal parts, the first oboe parts, with the assistant principal. And part of my role is to manage that distribution, you know, to, to make sure that nobody is feeling overworked, hopefully, and that we make accommodations for other things that are going on in people's lives because we, are, we do exist outside of the orchestra. And of course, also, you are playing that tuning note yes. at the concerts as well. That must be an experience itself. On one hand, I think that's kind of nerve wracking. It's just you you know, the 100 members on stage and everyone's quiet, the hall's down. I mean, as musicians, we're used to performing and managing any emotions that come with that. I also think, well, if you've been doing it since you were 13 years old in middle school band, maybe <laughs> playing the tuning, maybe it's totally not even a thought almost. What is it like? Well, it's still a thought for me. Maybe there, maybe there are other friends and colleagues of mine that, that feel differently about it. But I mean, it feels like I play a solo before the concert even starts. <laughs> you do. Yeah. So, and again, kind of touching back to something I said before, it feels like a responsibility. And I, and I try to take that really seriously. It is literally setting the tone for the concert. You know, maybe it's not, I'm not under any illusion that my colleagues are listening to what I play and vastly changing the intonation of their instruments. Really the function of that exercise is checking, you know, you sort of check in, you you get set for the concert, you make sure that we're all pulling in the same direction. And, and as I say, I feel, I feel responsibility for that. So I want to, to play a note that is beautiful, that has a beautiful sound, that has, yes, the right pure intonation. And that's inviting that, that my colleagues want to play with me. So you are playing the first oboe parts, distributing that amongst the, the second oboe, also managing English horn. And the assistant is also playing those on occasion as well. What is the reason why they would be playing? So they would be playing when you are not playing. What is an example of a reason why that would be happening? Well, it's to distribute workload. We play a lot of concerts. We play a lot of weeks of concerts. And in order to make sure that everybody is at their optimum, we distribute the workload that way. So often you would see a concert, you would come to a concert, there'd be an intermission. And most likely the assistant principal would play before the intermission and I would play after the intermission. And so 
that's not always the case, but that's that's a kind of a good template for to think about the way that we distribute things. And often because after the intermission is when some bigger works are programmed, and those might be the ones where the big solos that fall onto, onto um, your shoulders. That is certainly a reason, though. In the case of this Brahms violin concerto, there are plenty of of uh, pieces in the concerto repertoire that that maybe a principal, uh, certainly principal oboe, would would opt to play. What is your communication like with the rest of the wind section? Because you've described how you manage the oboe section. What is the communication like with the um, people on your right, people behind you, the flutes, clarinets, bassoons? Yeah, it's a very collaborative relationship, and that's another thing that I really value about my role is getting to to work with those other players. It's it's a bit like chamber music, really. We don't have the same latitude as we would if there wasn't a conductor, but the conductor um, helps shape the performance, and we communicate about what we'll we'll each do in turn. It sounds like your dog is also trying to uh, <laughs> do do an oboe call. Yes, <laughs> yes, I've got a beagle here who is very vocal. Now, a question for about your dog. Does your dog howl when you practice? <laughs> no, actually. Um, you sure? <laughs> he's howling right now because he wants to be let out in the backyard. But I got him as a foster dog first. Um, I We didn't adopt him straight away. And uh, the day that he came home with us, I needed to practice. I came up here into my study and I have a chair like a, a comfy chair to sit in and, and listen to music and relax. And I sat down, he he followed me up here and I started to work and practice. He jumped up into the chair and immediately fell right to sleep. <laughs> and I knew from then that he was going to be, it, it was sort of over. He was definitely not just going to be a foster dog. So he has been a good companion ever since. Oh, I love it. Because um, sometimes we have dogs and, and they'll howl, but I think it's for us, It's they're, they think we're howling, mm-hmm. and so they want to howl as well. So if someone starts playing, one they'll just run to the other room and start doing it because they think, oh, it's time to howl in the yeah. other room now. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he actually really just loves music, and Aww. he very often when I'm practicing, he'll come in the room and just fall asleep. Oh, I love it. Now, there's another question I like to ask everyone, and you can change names if you want, time periods, countries, I mean, anything at all. Um, and if you don't have an answer, that's that's an answer in itself. But I'm wondering, what is just kind of the craziest or wildest thing that's happened to you in a performance? <laughs> um, one thing that comes to my mind was an experience I had playing some chamber music. It was with my National Symphony colleagues, and... We were playing in a venue that was pretty small, and the audience was very up close to us. We were on a stage, but the audience was very close. And the piece we were playing was a Prokofiev quintet, which is it's an interesting piece of music written for violin, viola, double bass, oboe, and clarinet. So an, a kind of not usual ensemble. And... I don't think that the people that had come to this concert knew what to expect at all because we began playing and someone in the audience directly to the left of me in full voice says as we start, oh my. <laughs> and that just it just went from there. I mean, it was really not at all 
you know, what what they were expecting, I'm sure. Like in a George Takai kind of way or... Yeah, um, <laughs> that was sort of the tone of voice. Combination of, oh my goodness, what am I going to sit through now? Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. So, I mean, at that, it takes you out of the moment <laughs> because it's so unusual. People don't usually talk right next to you when you're playing in a concert, especially loud enough for you where you hear it. I, I'm sure that takes you out for a moment. <laughs> well, it you know, having experiences like that, maybe not as extreme as the one I just described, but having little moments like that, that kind of, it breaks down any facade. Like it, it, it brings humanity into the situation mm. and it lessens tension. So maybe whatever anxiety I might've been feeling about this performance was totally gone in that moment. It's totally gone. And it's like, oh, right. We're playing music. We have to do our best job and play and make it beautiful, but no one's going to die. You know, yes. it's, it's going to be okay. Um, you might like it. You might not like it. doesn't matter. We're going to have a nice time together. And um, yeah, then, then you can go your separate ways. Right. And I, I didn't identify the person who had that reaction, but I like to think that maybe they were surprised about initially what, the, what they were hearing, but maybe they came to enjoy the performance as it went along. That would be a nice, <laughs> nice way to think about it. Let's think about it like that. I like that. <laughs> I guess, is there anything else you wish that audiences knew about the oboe that they don't know or that they couldn't really know unless they spoke to or heard someone like you say it? I think that the thing that people really just don't have a conception of is the reed making. That, that There's so much that just goes into even playing one note on the oboe. I think that's that's also accurate. People just don't know. And if you ever go to someone's house who plays the oboe and you go into their room, I mean, it's, it's a little shop of horrors sometimes. There's We've got a lot of tools. A lot of very sharp knives, razors everywhere. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining me to talk to us all about the oboe. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. If you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical.